Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Cornerstone and His People. Sometimes in our Bible, we read about a cornerstone. So, for instance, you find that in Psalm 118, verse 22, which says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But what does that actually mean? And I ask that because until the development of large steel frame construction of buildings that we have in the modern era, well, most buildings were erected by stacking one stone on top of the other. So go to the ruins of ancient sites and see how solid those buildings actually were. Now, in those ancient palaces or temples, three stones were very important. One was the foundation stone, one was the cornerstone, and one was the capstone. So let's explain. The foundation stone was the first stone to be placed, and it was placed underground. It was the foundation of the building. And the cornerstone was the first stone placed above ground. Now, that stone was usually a massive stone. It would mark the northeast corner of a building. In the ancient architecture, the cornerstone was the most critically important stone of the entire edifice. It had to be geometrically perfect. Once perfect, it had to be laid perfectly. That was because it was the reference point for every stone to be laid after it. It had to be laid perfectly so much so that it was level, plumb, and true, and perfectly square. After the cornerstone was laid, then all the other stones in the building would be aligned to that stone. Every stone, every angle, every line of every stone lined up to the cornerstone. It's accurate to say the cornerstone defined the building. And then at the very top of the building, you'd place the capstone. But let's get back to the cornerstone. Because the cornerstone defined the building, the ancients had a practice. Once the cornerstone was laid and before anything else was built on top of it, A ceremony would be held celebrating that the cornerstone was laid well and therefore the building would be solid. And so the highest officials of a city or a nation would show up to celebrate that the cornerstone of an important building had been properly laid. Now, of course, today there are very few cornerstones placed. You know, we lay a foundation either on pilings or a solid concrete foundation and then place steel girders on top of it. The ancient world was different, and for that reason, the word cornerstone, well, it's become an expression. I mean, we talk about the cornerstone of a society, the cornerstone of an agreement made between parties. I mean, the expression comes from older and ancient buildings. So using the word cornerstone figuratively just seemed natural. Well, we've been studying Matthew chapters 21 to 25, and Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, and now it was Tuesday of Passion Week. And we find Jesus in his first dispute with the religious leaders. And as we read, we get the feeling that something very big has happened. Jesus has rebuked the corruption in the temple as well as the corruption in the priesthood. He's told the chief priests and elders they were unqualified in making spiritual judgments. And we've also seen that he's cursed the fig tree. And if I'm right on this, he's not cursing Israel. He's he's actually cursing the temple the temple that lacks the fruit of righteousness and offers God's people nothing but leaves that hide its nakedness. And if we'd been there and we'd been on our game thinking about what all this meant, well, we'd get the impression that something very big was happening. If Jesus was the Messiah, 
Well, has the Messiah come to remove the temple? Has he come to curse Israel's present system of worship? And that would be our question. And in his first encounter with the chief priests and elders, Jesus has told them a parable of a father with two sons, and Jesus made it clear that the tax collectors and the prostitutes would make it into the kingdom of heaven ahead of the chief priests and elders. Well, to say those things was outrageous. It was a a declaration that, that God had rejected Israel's system of worship and her leadership. It was also a statement of of his thorough rejection of the corruption of impure religion. But Jesus isn't done yet. He's got another story to tell, another parable. And whereas the earlier parable, the parable of the two sons, the one that did his father's will and the one who didn't, that parable stressed the religious leader's rejection of John the Baptist, but this one will stress their rejection of Jesus himself. So let's start with Matthew 21:33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, at the outset, this parable starts in the way that would have been familiar to everyone who's been listening. It sounds like a parable that Isaiah the prophet once told. Well, let me read a part of that, Isaiah 5, 1 to 2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, that is, sour ones that weren't really good for anything. So the vineyard that Isaiah was describing was a vineyard that, in spite of the work that had been done, produced nothing beneficial. And then later on, Isaiah explains the meaning of the parable. Isaiah 5, 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, the vineyard is Israel. The one who planted them is God. He also shaped them that they might respond positively to his law. Instead, they threw the law away and became a lawless people. And so God was going to dig up the vineyard. It's a warning of judgment to come. Well, in Jesus' day, everyone knew of Isaiah's parable. That parable was told before the Babylonians came and burned Jerusalem to the ground. So telling a parable like Isaiah's parable, well, that had an ominous sense to it. When Jesus began his parable, of the master of a house who planted a vineyard, everyone should have known immediately. He's speaking about God and how he planted the nation of Israel. The planting, the clearing of stones, the setting up of a watchtower to protect it from wild animals who might destroy it. I mean, all of that is the story of the history of God's dealings with his people. God had brought Israel into being. And then comes the twist in Jesus' story, a twist we don't find in Isaiah's parable. You see, in Jesus' parable, the master of the house leases out the vineyard to tenants. Now, who are those tenants who lease the master's property? Well, as we go through the parable, it's going to become quite clear that Jesus has the religious teachers of Israel in mind, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the entire religious establishment. They're the tenants. Well, very good. Let's let Jesus continue to tell his story. Matthew 21, 34 to 36. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. 
Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. So in order to understand this story, the situation being described would have been very easy to understand in the day in which Jesus told it. See, it was a very well-established practice in that day that when someone rented out a vineyard, the owner would collect a share or a percentage of the harvest. And the point that Jesus is making is that the owner is making demands of the people who lease his vineyard, and he has a right to do that. But these tenants have become accustomed to imagining that, that they own the vineyard. And maybe they've leased it for some time, and they, they've forgotten that they're on borrowed land. Instead, they think that they can do anything they want to the vineyard, and there will be no day of reckoning. They've lost touch with the fact that the property is not their own, and that's exactly what the religious teachers have done, says Jesus. They no longer thought of themselves as accountable to God for how they managed the temple or conducted worship in Israel. Well, that same attitude, think about it. It can affect any local church. When leaders begin to make their own decisions, conduct worship in the way that they think works best for them, rather than studying the scripture to see what God demands they do in worship. But let me not get distracted from the main point. The servants that the owner sends to remind the tenants that the property belongs to another. Well, they're the prophets that God has sent through the ages, starting with Samuel going on. And as we continue to study this text, we're going to see in chapter 23, Jesus will talk about all the prophets that the forefathers of the religious leaders of Israel have murdered. He'll go on to call Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It's disgraceful. It's a murderous history. There's not a doubt that the religious teachers are the children of the corrupt religious teachers before them. These religious teachers weren't mistaken in their theological opinions. No, 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 no. These men are monsters. They are the enemies of God. And then it is here at this moment. When we think this is merely a parable of the evil done by the religious teachers of Israel, this parable takes an unexpected twist. Jesus inserts himself into it. Everyone has a story. We all come from a beginning and an end. And while it may go largely unnoticed by the world around us, God knows our story and he invites us to unite our story with his. The story of Jesus is not simply something we read. It's a drama which invites preparation and participation. We participate by faith and obedience. So thank you for your prayers and financial support that you offer this ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to telling the whole story of God with consistent, clear teaching of the Bible. Your support ensures the truths of God's Word are taught daily. We ask you to consider a gift to support Bible teaching this month, perhaps for the first time, or by becoming a monthly partner. To give a gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. It is true that the religious leaders of Israel were planning to murder Jesus even before he had ridden into Jerusalem on the day we now call Palm Sunday. But now that it was the Jewish Passover, well, they didn't want to kill Jesus just when the you know city was crowded with people from all over Israel. I mean, that would be too open. The chances of the population turning against them was far too great. 
not during the Passover festival. They said, no, no, we're going to do it later. And I've made the point that the damning parable Jesus was telling against the religious leaders of Israel was about to take a twist that shocked most of the listeners. After the tenants of the vineyard had stoned the servants of the owner, now we read in Matthew 21, 37 to 39, finally he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. It's hard for us to conceive of any owner after seeing his servants killed would then come to the conclusion that, well, he should send his son now. And who would do that? But this is indeed the story of the great love of God for his errant and wayward children. Yeah, as the writer of Hebrews has told us long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. From Seth, the son of Adam, who testified to righteousness in a world that had gone mad with evil, to Noah, building an ark, to Abraham, testifying to the one true God, to Moses standing before the power of Pharaoh, testifying that there is but one true God and that one must not harm God's people. God has sent plenty of prophets in the past. You know, we go beyond that to Elijah, Elisha, and their clash with the kings of their day. Or think of 1 Kings 22, the righteous prophet Micaiah facing off against the false prophet Zedekiah. Micaiah is sent to prison for prophesying the truth, but his words prove true. See, I often understand Jeremiah's response when when he was called to be a prophet. See, he doesn't want to be one. And God tells him he should not be afraid of the people. What else would a, a true prophet think other than the people? They're going to turn against me. Indeed, Jeremiah was horribly mistreated. He spent time in prison to say nothing of the fact that Isaiah was most likely sawn in two before him. And so what would a righteous God do when one after another of his prophets were persecuted and others murdered? And the answer from the Bible is that he did send his son. And yes, when he came, the eyes of the wicked just lit up. Here comes the heir. Let's kill him. And once we've done so, we're done with God. We can then construct our own religion and our own nation in whatever way we want. It will be ours. Let's own our religion for ourselves. Matthew 21, 40 to 41. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So listen closely. The owner of the vineyard, God, will put the tenants, the Jewish religious teachers, to death, and he will entrust the vineyard to other tenants, to other leaders. See, Jesus is testifying that the religious leaders of Israel are going to be put to death. And that did, in fact, happen in A.D. 70. But listen, he's also saying that he will end the right of the Jewish religious establishment to lead his people. The chief priests, the elders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, as well as the scribes will no longer have access to the true vineyard. And here the vineyard becomes the true people of God. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying that God will create a new people and that Israel's religious system will be utterly rejected. And furthermore, Jesus is saying that the new tenants, that is, the new religious leaders, will give to the owner the fruit of the vineyard in their season. And the meaning here is that the vineyard will be fruitful for God's purposes rather than for the purposes of the tenants. 
See, Jesus is predicting a new era as well as a new people of God, a new set of religious leaders, a new group of faithful people to replace his unfaithful system, unfaithful leaders, unfaithful followers. In short, Jesus is predicting what actually happened. God would create his people, a people comprised of Jews and Gentiles from every race on earth to be his holy people, and the religious system of Israel would be rejected. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say Israel would be rejected. It's, it's more than can be said in this message, but the rest of the New Testament does make it clear that in the future, God will still call all Israel to faith and repentance. But in the meantime, Jesus will create a community of faithful people who utterly replace Israel's corrupt system of faith and worship. Now, one statement needs to be made before we carry on. See, many of you are aware that in the Middle Ages, when anti-Semitism was running high, the Jews were often referred to as Christ killers. And this parable was used. And it's possible to use the parable to say, look, it was the Jews who, seeing the Son from the Father coming to them, killed the only begotten of the Father. See, I hope you can see how anti-Semitism gets started. Well, let's deal with that right here. It is true that the religious leaders of Israel led the way to the murder of Jesus. The Romans followed the lead of Israel's teachers when they crucified Christ. And it's also true that in following their religious leaders, a great company of Israel demanded As Pilate presented them with a choice, they demanded that Jesus be crucified. Their voices called out the murder of their Messiah and the Son of God. Indeed, they even went so far as to say, and here I'm quoting Matthew 27, verse 25, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Yeah, it was not just the religious teachers. It was a great crowd in Israel that followed them that gladly and willingly took part in those crimes as well as willingly said they'd take culpability for it so that succeeding generations would also be guilty of their crime. But let's examine what they did from a scriptural perspective. I mean, first of all, the people in that crowd may have wanted the blood of Jesus to be applied to their children, but let's also remember the law of God, Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. That's to say, they might have demanded that the blood of their actions be on their children, but God did not grant them their request. And we had better not hold the children guilty for what the fathers have done. Also remember that Israel is given the role of being God's lesson book for the nations. What they did, all humanity would have done. You would have done it too. Don't you condemn Israel as a nation, for if you do, you're actually condemning yourself. They're a mirror held to your own life. But with that, we now come to the climax in which Jesus no longer speaks in parables. He's speaking plainly, Matthew 21, 42 to 44. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, when Jesus said, have you never read the scriptures, he's referring here to Psalm 118.22, the very psalm I quoted when I began this message. Remember I said that a cornerstone, is the stone in a massive building which sets the stage for the entire structure. 
That structure is the people of God. Now, the builders that rejected the cornerstone, those builders are the same people in this parable that are called the tenants. They're the religious leaders in Israel. Those wicked builders rejected the cornerstone that God had chosen to give direction to his people. Only the master builder, God, can lay the cornerstone and set the direction for the building. But these tenants rejected God's choice, and so God made a firm decision. He's removing Israel's religious leadership. He has taken from Israel that leadership and given it to the followers of Jesus, and they will be made up of Jews and Gentiles. But there's more to be said here. If you fall on this stone, that is, if you seek to destroy this stone, not only will you not succeed, It would be like falling on a stone from a very high distance. You're going to be broken into pieces. You'll never succeed in removing the cornerstone. Jesus will be the centerpiece of all of human history, and he certainly will be the centerpiece of all the people of God. It is through Christ alone that salvation will come. But another warning is attached. When this stone falls on anyone, it's going to crush them. That's to say, in the end of the day, every human being including these religious leaders, will have to give an account of themselves before the Jesus whom they sent to the cross. So if anyone opposes Jesus, he will fall on them. That is to say, don't you take Jesus lightly. As David said, as he prophesied about the Messiah, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Take care, says Jesus, in what you do, for it would be foolish to underestimate the Son of God. John, thanks for your message. Can you help me, though? Help me understand a better definition of replacement theology. And and are you advocating for replacement theology in this passage? Yeah, that's a great question. No, I'm not advocating for that at all. I, replacement theology means that the place of Israel has now been replaced entirely. There's no specific plan that God has anymore for Israel. And I don't hold to that. I, I think that because I'm premillennial, I believe that Uh, during the millennium, that God has a very specific place for his people, Israel. There is a role for them yet to play. And uh, following Zechariah's prophecy that Israel will rally towards their Messiah when he actually returns. So I do hold to that. Um, However, I I wanted to make the point that there is a new thing that has been done, and that is God has created one new man out of the two so that Jews and Gentiles form one race together. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We never get tired of hearing how listeners are impacted by the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. It's always such an honor when you take the time to let us know the ways you've been encouraged. One Back to the Bible Canada listener recently wrote, I'm grateful for your encouraging and truthful teaching of God's Word. May God continue to richly bless this ministry. Susan, a listener of Laugh Again with Phil Calloway wrote, I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. There are so many days in which I need a boost of encouragement and an uplifting perspective on life. I love the way you approach each day with a smile. Thanks for making me laugh. If you'd like to share with us your spiritual journey and how it's been impacted through these ministries, 
don't hesitate to do so. Just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.